an exit If you blink you've gone too far We all get our news from the gal behind the bar It takes a village to raise this community And even if you don't go to church You say grace or give your thanks before you eat This is us A small town in America And put simply We like things how they used to be We got one stop sign The bar closes at nine And we got an Exxon You can't miss it It's up there on the right And this is home We take care of our own If you can't relate Get back on the interstate and go I am so happy you've made it. You have made it to another episode of Climax the Podcast, Love Letter to a Small Town, a product of the Climax Scots Digital Network. Each week, I'm very happy to bring you this show. My name is Kevin Harvey, a proud 1998 graduate of Climax Scots Community Schools. Last week, you got to know a little bit about Noah and Ann Miller from the Peace Community Christian Church, a.k.a. the Gas Station Church, the way we refer to some landmarks in Climax, hence the reason that one was titled Fueled by Faith. I really enjoyed learning a lot more about Noah and Ann for a lot of reasons, but especially because I just met them at the tail end of summer, and it was great to know them a little bit more and get to know some of their and their family's stories. Hopefully this isn't just welcome. Hopefully it's welcome back. Most weeks, I encourage you to make sure you're subscribed on whatever podcast feed works for you. There's a whole lot of podcast apps out there, and Climax the Podcast is on just about all of them. Whether that's subscribing on Apple, Spotify, those are kind of the big two, but then there's SoundCloud, there's Stitcher, actually Stitcher may have fallen off. If you go to ClimaxThePodcast.com, it'll jet you to, I think it's about 100 different feeds. Very easy to hit that subscribe button, and it's free! And that will make sure every episode of Climax the Podcast gets downloaded to your computer or mobile device, and you can listen to it at your leisure, you can listen to it every week, or you can binge it. In fact, I encourage it. There's some binge-worthy episodes on this show. Those subscriptions and then engaging with social media posts, liking, sharing, everything you can do to help share the word of Climax the Podcast helps get more ears on the show, and that's kind of the point. If this is a welcome back, you know we like to do the business up front, thanking those who help us keep the lights on here at Climax the Podcast. She's been with us since episode one. She is the OG sponsor, and honestly, most listeners could probably do this ad read for me. I may even have some local members of the community do the Kristen ad read because I feel like almost everyone knows it by heart by now, but say it with me now. Many thanks to the OG sponsor of Climax the Podcast, Kristen Wachowski with State Farm. Kristen's office is in Battle Creek, located just off the intersection of 20th Street in Columbia, across the street from Ollie's, and behind Chicago Title. She's got some lovely signs high in the sky that'll help you find her driveway and her front door. Kristen and her team do an amazing job connecting with you person to person, focusing truly on what your needs are, not what their wants are. I haven't had that many insurance agents in my life, probably a half dozen or so. And Kristen has made things so, so easy for me. Full disclosure, she is my personal agent. Transitioning from Illinois to Michigan, that could have been complicated. Like a 15-minute phone call, it was done. And she talked to me about me, my business, and even some future needs, but not in a big salesy, twist-your-arm kind of way, and I had a full understanding of what she was putting down. Kristen deals in a lot of different kinds of insurance. Auto insurance, motorcycle insurance, homeowner's insurance, condo insurance, renter's insurance, business, life, recreational, vehicle, boat, KitchenAid stand mixers. Okay, I might have made that part up. But if there's somebody that could do it, if there's somebody that could insure your KitchenAid stand mixer, it's probably Kristen. 
To get in touch with Kristen and her team, give them a call today at 269-968-5130 or visit her website and say it with me now, callkristen.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N, callkristen.com. And Climax the Podcast would not be possible without the support and archival access from our friends at Prairie Historical Society. Tuesday mornings from 10 to noon and Thursday evenings from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m., you can visit the History Room at Lawrence Memorial Library. If your schedule or your visit to town maybe doesn't line up with those, you can make sort of an ad hoc appointment. You can call Pat and Sharon Harvey at 269-746-4796, and they'd be happy to work out a time that maybe will work with your schedule outside of those business hours. For over 40 years now, PHS has documented the histories of Climax Scots in the surrounding areas. There's a whole lot to absorb in that history room, and even more that's about to become a little more accessible to the public as the website is going to launch in just a couple of weeks in the month of March. The new website, there's not much to do there yet, prairiehistoricalsociety.org. That will be behind a paywall of the $15 per year annual membership because PHS is fueled by generous donations from the public, folks just like you. That $15 per year membership for a long time has gotten members the six bi-monthly newsletters, and now those same members will have access to prairiehistoricalsociety.org, and new members can actually sign up through the website. For now, those $15 membership dues or other generous donations can be sent to Prairie Historical Society, 107 North Main Street, P.O. Box 82, Climax, Michigan, 49034, and you can also give PHS a like on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ClimaxPHS. And Climax the Podcast is a product of the Climax Scots Digital Network. You can get all the information on CSDN at ClimaxScotsDigitalNetwork.com or on CSDigitalNetwork.org, two websites that go to the same place, or on the Spaces by Wix app. You can download Spaces by Wix to your phone, and if you enter the code CSDN24, CSDN24, that will subscribe you for free to all the content from CSDN. That'll get you podcasts, videos, news and blogs, and even more. And CSDN would appreciate it if you check out the services link on those apps or those websites. We've started a service that's growing a little bit in popularity where we convert older formats of multimedia to modern digital formats. So if you have things like slides, photo negatives, still photos, VHS, those mini cassettes from those smaller camcorders after VHS, VHS-C, Hi-8, Mini-DV, we even have the equipment to do 8mm and Super 8 film now, and we can do audio cassettes and a whole lot of different things. If you have an older format of multimedia that you want to truly be preserved forever because tapes degrade, it's what they do, act now before your memories turn into a possible literal pile of dust. Pricing in general starts at $20 per unit. Now for some things like VHS tapes or audio tapes, that's just $20 per individual tape. If you have five or more, that's where volume discounting comes in. And for things like photos, negatives, slides, it's definitely not $20 per, but those orders are always very unique. There's a lot of variables there, so fill out the contact form at ClimaxScottsDigitalNetwork.com, CSDigitalNetwork.org, or on the Spaces by Wix app. Let us know what you've got going on, and we can get back to you with what it's probably going to take, if we can do it, and how much that might cost. And just like that, the business is done. This week, we are returning to the Salute to Veterans series. This series of interviews was actually conducted by Dwayne Drollett Jr., former guest of this podcast. 
and he talked to many local veterans of the time, and a lot of them, unfortunately, are no longer with us, so it's great to hear their stories, to learn more when they just aren't here to tell us those stories. That's part of the big reason this podcast exists, is to just document the stories of the amazing people from the towns of Climax and Scotts. This week, we're throwing it back to Dwayne's conversation with Maynard Piper, a longtime resident well-known to much of the community, I dare say probably the entire community. And with the Salute to Veterans series, I like to provide a little trigger warning. I say trigger warning because these are interviews with veterans. They are telling stories from when they were quite literally at war for our country and even indeed our community. Not all the stories are sunshine and roses. Some of them are very, very heavy topics. So if anything in the realm of wartime first-person stories might be upsetting to you or trigger something for you, tune in next week because we don't want to have you listen to anything that might upset some of those issues. And now, without further ado, let's get into the main event of Episode 31, the Salute to Veterans series with Maynard Piper. Sixteenth of October, two thousand. Well, we've got Maynard Piper here tonight. He's, I guess, he's been a local boy since he's able to walk, haven't you, Maynard? Right, correct. And uh, you've decided that you'd be willing to share your experiences with us uh, of World War II, and I'll just let you start wherever you want to start uh, from day one or whatever you're comfortable with, and. Uh, we won't make you do your rank and serial number and all that well, stuff. I can remember it. That's I, one thing. I bet you can. Oh, yes. That, uh, every once in a while it pops in my mind. That's the first thing we had to learn. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, in 1940, I uh, tried to get into the Air Cadets. And we, I think there was 140 some of us down to the Elks Temple that wrote the exam. Now, is this in Battle Creek? Battle Creek. In Battle Creek. And uh, I never really worked on anything I don't think as hard in my life as I did that. And at noon, I think there was 27 of us called back for the afternoon. And I got into the trailer for physical. And the first thing they did is check my eyes. And maybe that ended my career in, in the Air Force. And, uh, then in 41, I was drafted for that one-year deal, where you went in for one year. There was four of us, and I don't remember, Tuppy Pierce was one, Ed Barkley was one, myself. I don't remember the fourth one. I was the only one that sure that I would go, because uh, Ed Barkley supposedly had a bad knee and And Ed Barkley ended up as the only one that was taken. And uh, I was put on as 4F. On God, I didn't have enough teeth. Then they could, World War II came along, and you didn't need as many teeth. Uh, yeah. And so I went in, and I went in on a Wednesday. And on Friday morning, I ended up in the hospital over to the fort with the mumps. Spent 21 days in the isolation ward. And uh, I realize now, but I just dropped out of the world as far as the family was concerned. In fact, Herb Smith came over to the fort and checked around and finally found out where I was and so on. I realize now I could have got a nurse to call home or yeah. something, but 
farm boy and naive and I didn't. And, uh, so I got out of the hospital on a Friday. I got a day and a half pass. I'll back up just a little because the, in the hospital, some of the regular army guys in there and says, now anytime that you've been in the hospital like this, you can get a three day pass. So I go back to the company and check to the first sergeant. He says, first thing you better do is go get a haircut. It had been three weeks up there, and part of my hair was longer when I went in, so I went and got a haircut, went back in, so I'm in. He says, What's talking about tall fellow up there? And he had a group out there laying sod. I walked and I don't know, it turned out he was captain, but I don't imagine I addressed him as captain or anything. Seemed to me like he was about seven foot tall, and I was looking up at him and explained my story to him, and he said, Well, Son, if you've been here that long, you've been here too long, we may ship you out in the morning. But I did get a day and a half pass home. Back over, I had to be back at 9 o'clock on Sunday night. And 8 o'clock the next morning, I was on train headed for Louisiana. And I found out afterwards, after I got to see my records and so on, that the morning I went in the hospital, I would have went to Jefferson Barracks, Missouri, to the Air Force. That was just the red X across that page of my service record. Yeah. And when I got out of the hospital, they needed engineers. So I was sent to Camp Claiborne, Louisiana. And uh, I had about a month of basic training. The first sergeant came out to the platoon sergeant. And I think we was having a close order drill that afternoon or something. And he told him that. He wanted two fellows to work in the supply room that was up on their close order. And uh, well, he looked around and he said, Piper and someone else fall out and work in the supply room. But they just got the issue of the, the tools for our regiment. And I knew more about the tools and so on than the uh, supply sergeant they had in there. And, that was a lot better than being up in a close order drill. I was back and had showered and in my bunk when the other guys come traipsing in from training. Ran along about a week. They called me out to work in the supply room again. And that day the first sergeant came up and said that uh, we're putting you in the supply room to work. And then, <clears throat> so, I really only had about a month of basic training. Then, as it happened, why each regiment left a cadre or nucleus for a new outfit when the regiment moved out, and I was left as a supply sergeant for the new outfit that was supposed to come in. In fact, they, I guess, couldn't leave a private as a, to be a supply sergeant, so. They dated it back, and I made corporal one month after I went in. They dated it back the first of the month. Then went to a six-week school. I had company clerk school, first sergeant school, supply sergeant school, and so on. For six weeks, I went to that. Then when the troops started to come in for the new organizations, why, they happened to pick ours as a fill-in for the others that had people discharged or hospitalized, 
AWOL or so on. So we ended up with about a half of a cadre for our new outfit. So we just kind of went from one place to the other. We would go in and help uh, outfit get started, pack them up, send them on the way, and then we'd be shipped over to someone else and so on. I had uh, one, and normally our officers was about the same way too. They were just waiting for their next command. As our commanding officers in this group, had one officer I hit it off with good, and he talked with him. He said, "Say, uh, after we get through with basic training, we're going to Columbus, Ohio, for at least six months of on-the-job training in the engineer depot." He says, "I'd like to get you to go along with me," and uh, he says, "I could give you a master sergeant's rating on that." So we thought we had that all worked out. We waited till his transfer came through, put a request for transfer in for me and dated the day before and he signed as my commanding officer, sent it up to headquarters and back and he signed as commanding officer of the new organization. He went back up and it was about two weeks, didn't hear a thing, he finally went and checked. They said I was permanent training cadre and couldn't be transferred. Then I had another, I was with a uh, railway outfit that was in training. They called me in, the general, they said, you're supposed to report to General so-and-so at such and such time in full uniform. I wonder what in the world have I done wrong now? <laughs> and uh, reported. And then he said, sit down, Sergeant. I'd, up to Sergeant at that time. He said, have a cigarette? What in the world went on? He said, well, we've been checking your records and talking with the other officers and so on. We have an opening as a warrant officer, a supply officer with our battalion. We'd like you to go with us. Well, anything to get out of Camp Cleaver. I think everybody felt the same way wherever they were. It was a, and, uh, so they moved from the temporary camp out what they call it, West Cleveland. It was Tent Town and so on, to the main camp, and they had a railway that ran from Camp Cleburne to Clamp uh, Coke that they uh, done their practicing on, the actual on-the-job training. I spent one night there. The order came through that I was permanent training cadre and couldn't be transferred. So back out I go to Tent Town, and then uh, Daddy came down and she was staying down there working in the guest house. I could go up there nights and stay at 11 o'clock and see her. And she was pregnant, so I brought her home in January. I did get a furlough, seven-day furlough to bring her home. Yeah, again, the commander was pretty good. He gave me a three-day pass before and a seven-day furlough and a three-day pass afterwards. So it, uh, and I got back and there I had told twice that I was a permanent training captain. Well, this hotshot engineer outfit came along and I was the first enlisted man transferred into it. <laughs> it was all, in five weeks from the time the company was formed, we were on our way overseas. And it supposedly was the only engineer uh, outfit in the Army like we were. And we were. The story is 
where one specific purpose we were formed, but we never found out what that was. So we shipped out, and I heard these stories about uh, big convoys, ships as far as you could see, and so on. We loaded onto the, which had been a passenger uh, uh, vessel ship, and uh, the motor started running now back up there because half of the troops were on deck and half was in the hole. And every 12 hours you shifted. Had 12 hours on deck and 12 hours in the hole. And uh, about the motor started about 12 o'clock at night and went and got up the next morning. When I got up on deck, I was looking to see all these ships and so on. All I could see is water. We went across all alone, but uh, mm. but we had uh, air cover for two days out of the states. We could see planes circling, and then we had air cover for two days out of uh, Africa. Landed in Casablanca, Africa, just as the war ended in Africa. We convoyed to Bizerti and uh, loaded. I was loaded onto a LST with the equipment, and I had my driver with me. The rest of the company was on another one. We started on the convoy, first didn't know where he was going, but turned up Sicily. And we was out about a half a day, and the ship I was on blew a boiler. So we turned around, went back to Bizerti Harbor. They sent a sub-chaser with us, and just one ship went back. And so we sat in Bizerti Harbor for seven days, and uh, that's the first bombing that I went under. In Bizerti Harbor, they had shore batteries all around the circle, and there was a big battleship in there, too. And a German bomber came down and dropped uh, chandelier flares and lit it up like they Of course, all these shore batteries was firing and with tracer bullets, and this battleship was firing. I thought, well, this is just like the 4th of July. <laughs> well, then I found out that everything that goes up has to come back down. And it was rattling on through, so I took cover then. Then we went on to uh, Sicily. And the outfit I was in, we had four sections. We had a power section with large generators that we could go into a town like Battle Creek or so on, and furnish all the necessary power, hospitals and so on. And we had a Highline crew that worked and repaired Highlines to the existing one. We had a water section, but not uh, purification. They worked on the water works or repairing water works and so on. And we rebuilt the uh, power plant in Sicily that handled uh, furnished two-thirds of the power for the island of Sicily. We used a lot of uh, Italian war prisoners. They were still at war with Italy at that right. time. And, and from then it went to Naples, or no, um, yeah, Naples. I don't know where I'm <laughs> Yeah, Italy. Okay. Naples, Italy. And we were there for about six months because they were held up at the Volturna River and they was there. And in there we did all kinds of work. And it was my job, Mason, to uh, 
construction supplies, whether it was glass, we done hospital work, and whether it was wire for the lines or so on, used all of the civilian material that we could find. Oh, sure. I had an interpreter with me all the while. And so on. In fact, I got so I could speak Italian pretty good and carry on a conversation with him. And from Naples, we went to Rome. And there again, I think we moved like in a 36-hour period from where we'd been six months to Rome. And the company went ahead and I either, <clears throat> always on every move, I was either the first to go or the last. I stayed and I was left in, back in Naples to clear all our things because we had like 24 linemen's trucks like Consumer Power has their trucks and that we had requisitions and they didn't belong to us like we rented them. But right. we, uh, had to clear all the paperwork on all those. And I was a first lieutenant, and I was the last two left. And we took off in our jeep after dark and driving to Rome with uh, just blackout lights on. And <clears throat> got into Rome. Of course, we didn't know where our company was, and we had the story that Rome was all completely shot up and demolished, and so on. We finally found an alley. We backed the jeep back in there, and. Uh, threw a tarp up overhead, and I was just laying on the steering wheel, sleeping because it was like 2 o'clock when we got in there or something. I heard a big rumble and so on, and I thought it was a, must be a tank coming and so on. And I grabbed that submachine gun and threw it back, and here goes a streetcar gun right in front of us. <laughs> and uh, we bivouacked right in the heart of Rome for seven days for the, to, the company didn't do anything for seven days, just waiting for orders and so on. Of course, I was busy on getting clothing and food and yeah. everything around it. Uh, and then the, um, we done, uh, uh, while I was in Rome, the boys done a lot of uh, highline work. And, uh, and of course, we had generators set up at hospitals and our hospitals and native hospitals too, we was furnishing powers for. And uh, then they pulled our company back to, to Caserta, just outside of Naples. And for a month we were there, bivouacked in a olive grove. And the boys were quite unhappy there because it, they uh, put them back into like basic training. They had to keep busy doing something, so they had them out on 10-mile marches and close-order drill and so on. And, been overseas for a year and a half and back, but they, you got to keep them busy. Yeah. And uh, then I was picked, there was six enlisted men and two officers from our outfit was picked. And we went in with the Third Army, I believe it was. We have a Seventh Army in Italy, a Third Army. And we were supposed to, uh, as it turned out, to uh, help decide on which port was the best for to bring troops and supplies in in France, Marseille or Toulon. And uh, we went in, into Marseille, France, and I was away from the company about five weeks before the company caught up with us. Now we was in a staging area first, right where our jeep would be on the Liberty ship. And then we loaded on the Liberty ship in uh, Naples Harbor. 
and we spent seven days on that on the ship just sitting there wondering where we was going. And then I landed in Southern Plants in D-Day plus four hours. That they uh, lift us off the side into the LCI, and of course we had the exhaust up and dropped us off about three foot of water and drove ashore and went inland about 40 mile that night. There wasn't any, uh, the FFI Free French Interior had supposedly had it all cleared out. The next day we went back into Marseille to, it was our job to check the power plant and the water supply in Marseille. And we were Steve and I, I think there was about 10 or 12 Jeeps in this list. And we were the third one in line. And the mortar shell lit in front and kind of sprayed the windshield of gravel and so on and it pulled up over the sidewalks and ducked back in the mess. The only time I was really glad that I had that submachine gun. But I wasn't scared. It was just almost like there was deer hunting or something like that. Finally, the general in command, he says, let's get the H out of here. And we whipped around and went into town from a different direction and we captured two German war prisoners and the power that was hiding in the power plant waiting to give up to the Americans. Uh -huh. And but we loaded them in a jeep and took them down to the French stockade and turned them in. And there in Marseille <clears throat> we had a crew helping to set up a staging area for troops coming in. They dug latrine pits and this and that. And there, and I don't know how all this happened, we ended up with between 120 and 130 German war prisoners. Uh, we had electricians, plumbers, carpenters, and, uh, and we ended up taking those with us clear into Mannheim, Germany. Now they had a, one of their sergeants in charge to them when we'd move while they'd build a starcade with the, wire and so on, but they were fed good and treated good. And those fellows, they was as tired of the war as we were. But we had some real craftsmen with it, uh, with us. And I happen to, or I've mentioned this several times, like our shop trucks, the American boys, maybe the tools in the pile here and so on. We got those Germans in there and everything was clean in place and so on. <laughs> and uh, went from Marseille to Dijon, France, where there were several moves in between. We usually stayed from 5 to 50 miles behind the front lines. And then we stayed in Dijon, France for quite a while. And then from there to Mannheim, Germany. And we were loaded to go to Munich when the war ended. And uh, so then they started pulling us back. And I don't remember where we came back into France. And then they sent in, of course, in that time they came up with this point system that you got discharged with 85 points. Well, I had 135 points. So we had to take physical for whether you was fit to stay there, come home, or be sent to Japan. But I had the point system. And the first sergeant and I were real good friends, and that's the only time that I could think of that I really ghoul bricked in the in the situation, because as soon as the war ended, they started to revel in the morning, calisthenics in the morning, and close order drill and all that. All those fun things. Busy. And we didn't like that. 
and the nine coms of the first three degrees had to hold Reveille and calisthenics. Well, I did have a bad shoulder, so I'm going through for this physical. And he says, was anything wrong with your eyes, ears, nose, or throat? No. Anything with your back, arms, legs? I've already said, I've got a bad shoulder. We felt it. Got the captain over there. What is it bother? And I said, well, it doesn't bother me too much without I raise it straight up over my head. So I said, it bothers me. Calis oh, you shouldn't do any calisthenics at all. <laughs> 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 and I took that back to the first sergeant. Because he and I bumped together and so on. He said, well, you go, Brick. <laughs> but I didn't like that because some of our boys were taking off and they was home bed check at night and revel in the morning. And if uh, you found somebody that wasn't in, in bed at night, you had it. I mean, if, if you didn't report him while you was in bad shape, you did report him while you wasn't a very nice guy. And so I, that's you know, I enjoyed calisthenics at all. So then we pulled back to this place in France, and uh, they sent it over a whole new station complement, officers and men, for our outfit. But I was left behind. Well, this all material was, I had the most points of anybody in our company, and I think I was the last one home. But uh, this new commanding officer wouldn't sign for anything until he was seen it on paper. We, anything we didn't have was put on a report of survey. But things had been lost, and paperwork hadn't been kept up. And so, in fact, a lot of the material that we were supposed to have never did catch up with us. That some of our generators and so on that we were supposedly issued at first because we moved so fast. In fact, and, uh, so that took about a month to get, and now that went clear down to the outfit originally was for so many flashlights and eight watches for the top NCOs and so on. That had to be all accounted, everything had to be in every tool and all these shop trucks and so on. So it was quite a job to do. You were what, 18, 19, 20? How old were you then? I was 22. 22? Yeah. Wasn't that quite a lot of responsibility for yes, a kid? Yeah. You probably grew up a little bit in those no, days. Very much. But, uh, yeah. And I, uh, I tell that I worked hard in the service, especially, especially in Italy, because as I say, we used native equipment, anything we could find. And I had authorization to signed the commanding officer's signature or anything, and supposedly you're supposed to go out and find this material, then go to the Army headquarters and get it approved that you needed it, and then go to the Army civilian government and get their approval, and then they'll get the stuff. Well, the material. We're going to back on. Well, back, as far as this material, why? With the interpreter I had, it, uh, I had several different ones, but we'd find the material while we'd take it and I'd give them this piece of paper. And I would say that they were to be paid by the Italian government when the war was over and so on, whether they were got paid or not. So then afterwards, why, after I got that, then that night I'd have to go back and type up the proper requisition and so on, and the next morning I'd take those and get them approved. We already had the material, but I'd get that approved and so on. 
Then after uh, we got the turned over to the new complement of the company in France there, well then I was put in the casual group waiting to come home. And I think I was there about a week or something like that and the company clerk came and told me that uh, I was to leave the next morning for the Riviera for a seven-day R&R. And I says, get my name off of that list. I said, I want to go home. I don't want to go to Riviera. And as it turned out, I would have gone to Riviera uh, the next morning, which had been Saturday, and on Monday I did start for home. And uh, I was, we actually traveled by almost like cattle cars for part of the way to get back. Don't remember where we was, but it was in one camp or uh, staging area coming home when the war in Japan ended. And we got the news about two o'clock in the morning, and I didn't know whether to dig a foxhole or what, because the bullets was flying, and the drums were beating. <laughs> and they the got most into, dangerous part of the war. <laughs> got into uh, La Harve to come home, and uh, that was a tent area. And we had turned in our all our equipment. And, sitting there in a barracks bag waiting to be picked up and they came around and said, well, you're going to stay. The Liberty ship you used to go home on and blew a boiler and so you're going to be... So we spent seven more days there waiting and then they did come home on a troop ship with, I had, it seemed like it was 6,500 And I said one of the best sights I ever saw was the, the old Statue of Liberty with that gal when we came up the Hudson. <laughs> And we unloaded at night, and they fed us a big meal. It had fresh milk and ice cream. Uh, they got up and said, no one was held there longer than 24 hours. Next morning, they called us out and said, anyone going to Union Town Gap will be here at least three days. They haven't got a bed for you. And uh, it turned out I became friends with some boys from the 3rd Armored Division. It had a real good friend in New York. Camp Shank is where we unloaded it. And uh, so we got a three-day pass into New York. And so we spent three days in New York. Back, and we shipped out for Indian Town Gap the next morning. Got in there, and they loaded us on trucks and took us around to the mess hall and fed us. Back in the trucks and called us someplace and got out and they were hollering first sergeants this line, staff sergeants this line, and got in line the next thing I knew I stood there with a 15-day furlough man. Didn't have any beds for us. Hmm. So we threw a barracks bag in the pile as big as a high school building, I think they got stretched a little bit. Hmm. Got in some guys and we got a cab into Pittsburgh and I called Betty and said I was on my way home. And I got home on Thursday night about, well, I got a bad quick about 5 o'clock. But about 8 o'clock that night, I got a telegram. Sergeant Piper, report immediately to Indian Town Gap for separation. <laughs> I'd been home about six hours. But I waited until that was on Thursday, and I waited until Sunday before I went back for discharge. Now you had a son waiting for you at home, didn't you? First time I ever seen him, two and a half years old. Two and a half years old. He was born just one month after I got overseas. Yeah. I was, I had, I was, 
I think it was last year down the church they had the veterans up in front telling us that was two of the best sights I ever saw right. the Statue of Liberty and seeing my son for the first time. Yeah. And now it is that time of the week where we put a bow on this episode of Climax the Podcast. Thanks again to our sponsors and supporters, Kristen Wachowski from State Farm, Prairie Historical Society, and of course, all of you, the listeners of Climax the Podcast. And I want to let you know, I've made some contacts recently from a few of the much requested or most requested interviews that people have been asking for. I've made contact and gotten some loose commitments from a few of those, so hopefully sometime in the next few weeks I'll be able to share a little bit more on that, if not those most requested episodes themselves. I hope to have more on that soon. Thanks again, everybody. I'll talk to you guys in about a week.